What is up, guys? We are back again after a, let's say, brief absence. Um, myself and Gary have been incredibly busy for different reasons. Gary has been finishing exams. I moved flat. Um, so there's just been an overlap of our schedule, or there hasn't been an overlap of our schedules where we could actually record one of these or I could get one recorded with another member of the team because my internet was shocking. Anyway, with all that behind us, we are back again. And today we are joined by the beautiful, majestic, phenomenal coach, Dean. I know everyone who listens to the podcast follows us on Instagram, follows us on YouTube, follows us everywhere. You know, that 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 probably goes without saying. Um, so you're all well aware of who Dean is, but Dean, welcome to the podcast. Give a shout out to who you are and what you do. And then we'll get stuck into the podcast because today's podcast is uh, still, it's actually wrapping up the supplement series and um, that we had been going through. And today's podcast topic is sports performance supplements. Now, we've talked about it before, but you have to be very specific in terms of your goals. And when we say sports, like what does that actually mean? But we'll get into that. But first of all, Dean, how are you? In your own words, Paddy, I'm absolutely fantastic. So doing good. Yeah, so I'm Dean. I'm one of the resident nutritionists for Triage Methods. Um, why do you have me on the podcast specifically for this one? I suppose it might have something to do with the fact that I have done some specific study in performance nutrition over the last year or two. Um, so I've just postgraduate diploma in performance nutrition. Uh, so I have probably... A small amount of knowledge, shall we say, um, in this realm of sports nutrition. So, yeah, I'm and also, to... you do coach quite a number of sporting athletes. True, this is true. I have uh, a multitude of different people on my roster, and have had over the years uh, with a variety of different sports. So, yeah, I have, a, I, have a, I have a good interest in this. I think it's it's interesting. Um, athletic performance is uh, something that you know. It's I think with proper nutrition we can we can really take it to the next level and obviously i do brazilian jiu-jitsu myself so i'm interested in getting the the most out of it from that aspect as well but yeah happy to be on the podcast and ready to talk some sports nutrition supplements well we are very happy to have you um and obviously look we're going to assume like we've made the assumption in the vast majority of these podcasts that you have all the fundamental habits and things in place your general diet is good your general training is good. Your general sleep is good. Your general stress management is good. All of those things. I'm presuming you're ticking the box. I, we don't have to go through all that stuff every single episode. So if you don't have those boxes ticked, go back and listen to other episodes that actually go through that stuff, right? Because you can take all the supplements you want in the world. If you have a shit diet, your sleep is shit, your training is not actually something that is going to drive the adaptations that you want. And then you're stressed to the gills adding in a supplement is not, it's not going to solve your problems, right? And the supplements are the cherry on top, right? So we have to keep that in mind. And we need to get all those things dialed in first, right? Also, which is a specific caveat for the topic of discussing sports supplements and, you know, sports nutrition, you have to factor in if you are in a tested division, if you're in a sport and you are drug tested, it's on you to make sure that the supplements you put in your body are actually allowed and legal for your sport. So I'm putting that at the caveat at the start of this because 
I'm just going to assume that <laughs> you have that ticked, uh, ticked, you know, you're like, okay, look at the band list for your sport. The, if it's USADA, WADA, whatever, right? Do that. But then also make sure that the supplement brands, the supplements that you buy, ideally are at least third-party tested. But I think there is, and we'll talk about it later on, like specific testing, like I think it's called informed for sport or something like that. And so make sure you're getting good supplements that actually don't contain shitty things that are going to get you banned from ever competing in your sport again, right? (laughs) That would be ideal. And we might talk about that a little bit more in future. But to really introduce this, what I do want to say is we need to be specific in what we're trying to achieve because we're talking about sports here right but what does that actually mean are we talking about driving the adaptations needed to improve in your sport right that could be one avenue that you're you're trying to you know supplement towards are you talking about improving uh, acute performance like you're just like oh i actually have a really important game or training session or whatever i need to be at my best for that session right and um, Or are we talking about improving recovery, right? Are we talking about, oh, I want to be able to train more. And as a result, I'm going to supplement with these things, right? So we do have to be very clear on our goals and what the goal of supplementation actually is. And obviously there's other goals that we could talk about. They're generally the the big three when we're talking about supplementation here. It's like, are you trying to improve your adaptations? Like the longer term performance? Are you trying to improve your recovery? Uh, like, are you able to then train more or at least recover from the sessions that you're doing? Um, or are we trying to acutely improve our performance, right? Because the supplements we choose are actually different. Like if you're trying to improve your recovery, for example, you're probably not going to be necking back, uh, I don't know, a gram of caffeine before uh, your session. You might take that gram of caffeine to improve that singular uh, performance. You might be like, look, that's, I'm just, I need to be, absolutely dialed in i need to be wired like that might be the case we probably wouldn't take a gram we probably wouldn't recommend taking a gram of it but you know whatever you might be taking a whack of caffeine to acutely improve your performance but that might actually negatively impact your ability to recover and negatively impact your ability to adapt to that stimulus right so we have to be specific in our goals we have to be specific in terms of why am i taking this specific supplement we're not just going on like Uh, supplements for rugby you know like it's meaningless like analyze what's going on with you like what do you need to improve maybe you find it is a struggle for you to recover between sessions so you're like okay or maybe you're in the in in season and you're like right recovery is a bigger thing for me i need to be ready to go for that saturday game or sunday game or whatever it is right so you just have to analyze your situation do you mind to say on that dean before we potentially get stuck into the, the meat and potatoes of this yeah, just one additional thing. I um, no doubt you've covered this in in previous episodes on supplementation as well. But it's also the financial cost of a lot of these as well. You know, like I like as a nutritionist who works with people's nutrition, um, like I always, I would always advocate a food first approach, and I would always advocate, you know, if someone's saying, right, I have a hundred and fifty euro a week to spend on my nutrition. I would prefer to see you in Little or Aldi or Tesco with a basket full of fruit and veg and different carbs and, you know, a variety of proteins. Much rather see you doing that than going into fucking 
Holland and Barrett or, you know, going on my protein and buying all the laundry list of supplements that your your favorite influencer is is touting. And of course, we're going to get into like some of the effective supplements that you can't get through your diet. And that's obviously the, the point of this podcast. But to me, the financial cost of supplements is huge. And I always think of this from like a cost benefit ratio. What's the cost of, of, of using this? If it's like, you know, as I say, have to take the time out in your day to use the supplement, but also specifically the actual monetary value of that versus the benefit that you're getting out. And oftentimes, even for some of these supplements, whereby the research shows that they, it might have a small benefit, but then it's like, right, it costs 50 euro a month to have this in your stack it's like is it really worth it you know so these are the these are these are some of the main questions that you have to be asking before you actually as well as what you said patty uh with regards to like obviously making sure that you're getting the the batch tested varieties of supplements and everything like this um the financial cost is a big consideration with supplementation as well so yeah and there is also i suppose we should add when we're talking about this stuff there is potentially also a health trade-off like some of these things might you know be good for performance but they might actually be negative for your health long-term. And that might be something you're willing to trade off. Like if you're training for the Olympics, like this is why fucking they all take drugs. You know, they're like, okay, well, there's probably going to be a negative impact on my health, but I want to be an Olympian. So that's what I care about most. I don't care if it takes five, 10 years off the end of my life, you know? So obviously our risk tolerance, our risk profiles, are all going to be different depending on our goals, depending on our history, depending on you know what's going on. Like we have to take that into account. Um, but anyway, right. So sports supplements, where do we start with this? I personally, whenever I'm talking about this stuff with uh, a client or just in, in general, I always look to at least get the baseline health supplements done. Right. And we've talked about them before in a podcast, so we don't necessarily need to go in depth into all of them. But stuff like a multivitamin, you know, not everyone needs to take one. And um, obviously, if you have a really good diet, that would be great. But oftentimes, even though athletes do tend to have better diets and do tend to have uh, a higher calorie intake, which generally leads to a better ability to get more you know, micronutrients in the fact that you have to, especially if you are a bigger athlete and a high output athlete, like you might just have to choose shittier carb sources, for example, and you might just not be able to get sufficient micronutrients in because you have such a high energetic output. Like you might have to choose stuff like just white rice all the time. You're like, that's the only way I can get like, even like stuff like sushi rice, you know, it's like, this is as close to sugar as you can get, <laughs> right? It's like, you might have to do that. And as a result, the your ability to get certain micronutrients in the diet does go down, even though you would think, oh, you have 4,000 calories to play with. It's going to be so much easier to get the food in, right? But the fact that you're training sessions you can't have like this full stomach you you have to really try to time your meals you know you don't want to be eating excessive amounts of fiber at certain times like there's just extra considerations so for even though you wouldn't necessarily think it something like a multivitamin for an athlete could be a phenomenal intervention stuff like omega-3s again it can be very hard to get fatty fish in the diet you might just not have access to it you might just not want to cook it you might be like all right look i have to get five thousand calories in a day i'm just going to batch cook these meals and like cooking fish doesn't necessarily lend itself as well to something like cooking like i don't know minced beef and rice and putting that in the freezer or something you know and um, like putting fish in the freezer and having it frozen for a few days you might be like this is just it's disgusting i don't want to eat it it's it's you know whatever so there's there's potential 
roadblocks, even as an athlete, who do you think would be more health focused, right? So we need to make sure our health baseline foundational stuff are looked after. And if you're looking, okay, I've got all the stuff that we talked about before nutrition, like our general diet, our general training patterns, our general sleep, stress management, et cetera. You've got all those done and you're like, right, what's the next thing I do? Are we just ensuring that any potential micronutrient deficiencies or any potential things that are going potentially wrong with the diet, are we making sure that they're short up? So that would be my first baseline intervention, general health supplements. Again, we've done a podcast on that. We don't necessarily need to dive deep on it, but would that be a similar stance to yourself, Dean? Would that be where you start? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because like a healthy athlete is one that is creating a foundation for them to be able to perform and recover and adapt to their training well. You know, so it's it's kind of like if you, as I say, it's kind of like you follow this if it fits your macros style of eating where it's like, right, I hit all my macros, but my day quality is really shit. You're going to feel shit as a consequence of that. You know, so if, if you can sort of get someone to a baseline of health that's that's good, you're you're essentially creating a really nice runway for their performance to be in a good spot as well. Now, again, there's some caveats to that, as you said earlier. Sometimes at the higher echelons of performance specifically, a sacrifice has to be made to health, especially if it's like, right, I need to use a bunch of drugs to 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 get myself to um to the one percent of the one percent. But typically speaking, you know, especially when it comes to the sort of broad spectrum of micronutrients and some of these other nutrients that can be a little bit tricky to get into the diet. If you can scaffold your diet, shall we say, with some of those baseline health supplements. And again, typically the, the cost-benefit ratio, as I said earlier, can tend to be pretty good um, with regards to those. Then, yeah, that would be kind of my first board of call as well. Fantastic. Right. So there's our starting position. Where do we go from there, right? Now, again, it's obviously going to be different depending on the exact sport, depending on the exact needs of the athlete, et cetera, et cetera, right? We don't have time to go into every single sport, every single potential avenue right we might do something like that in the future uh, we do have s- some stuff like that planned um but generalizing here right we have an athlete they need to be fit they need to be strong they potentially need to be muscular they need to be skillful etc etc everyone knows a general athlete profile right where do we start with supplementation what are we kind of thinking about next these maybe won't be in order but what are the kinds of supplements that we're thinking about yeah, well, I, I like to kind of think of it as, you know, I have A-list supplements, B-list supplements, you know, things that are obviously, or the cost-benefit ratio is more favorable or less favorable. And, you know, I think one of the best supplements from a cost-benefit ratio that has a bunch of research and, you know, it's very efficacious, quite quite safe, again, provided you get it from a from a reputable source um, and it's very affordable is creating, you know, like you, you have to start with creating. It's, uh, you know, at least if you're in, in kind of like a strength or power based sport, although there is some utility for endurance athletes as well. But I think creating is a really nice place to start. Um, I'm sure you've talked about it a bunch um, already before on the podcast, but just to briefly kind of um, just go over it. It's it's a good supplement for anybody that is that has that is doing activities that involve kind of bursty activities as it would as it would call it or high effort high intensity kind of uh, training so if you're sprinting or maybe you have to throw a ball or for our gym people you know if you're if you're lifting heavy kind of within you know one rep all the way up to kind of maybe 10 15 reps creatine is essentially going to be a big, a big help there um because it's essentially it's it's going to help with 
the production of force. And the way I like to analogize it is maybe if you are, uh, if you're sprinting, it might allow you to get an extra couple of seconds at the end of a sprint. Or maybe if you're lifting heavy, you might get an extra couple of reps um, at the end of, of a set there. And it's just essentially, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's creating an additional benefit um, for anything that's strength and power related. Um, and again, this kind of has benefits in terms of muscle building, because obviously if you're able to get a few a few extra reps here and there, you're going to be able to build more muscle. Um, and it's just a really, really good supplement overall because of, as I say, how, how cheap and effective it is and how well-researched it is. Um, and as well as that, there's obviously other benefits. As I say, for endurance athletes, there might be some, there might be some benefits from a perspective of getting more glycogen into the muscle cell. So obviously if you're if you're able to get more glycogen into the muscle cell, if you're a marathon runner or you're a distance runner or whatever it is, that might have some benefit for you as well. Um, and there is also some research to suggest that it's uh, quite helpful for, for brain health and, and cognitive function too. So it has a myriad of beneficial effects. Um, as I say, really good supplement overall. It's one of those things whereby as I say, you do get it from the diet. So it's it's in meat and uh, fish, but you, you'll only typically see about maybe two grams uh, that people will create uh, endogenously inside the body or through their food. Whereas if we want to sort of get that additional uh, ergogenic aid um, or ergogenic doses, it's called, you want to be supplementing around three to five grams uh, per day to sort of saturate your, your muscle creating stores and get all those benefits uh, from a strength and power uh, aspect specifically. Um, and I think another important distinctive point to be made here, people sometimes think that creatine is like you just take it and you get the benefits straight away it's it's not that's not the case it takes time for the for the muscle cell to take creatine up um so that's why some people advocate for a loading phase of 20 grams a day for maybe seven days or something like this that's not necessary but it will uh, lead to the benefits a little bit faster uh but it's one of those things where people say right when do i take this or you know is there a best time to take it or whatever it is? It's like, if you can remember to take it, that's going to be kind of the, the big thing because people often just forget to take it. And it's not a big deal if you miss a day here or there because it sits in your muscle cell. It's your, you know, it's, it's in the muscle cell and that's where the benefits are created. But again, the key thing with it is don't be worried about necessarily the time of day that you take it. Just try and consistently take it three to five grams every day. And that's going to be kind of where you get the most benefits from it. Yeah, and generally we just want creatine monohydrate like there's all these fancy creatine ethyl ester, ethyl ester and all these different things. And it's like, yeah, you probably don't need that. There's, they, there might be certain circumstances and certain situations where certain forms might potentially edge it, but it's creating monohydrate is just so cheap and you get the effects. Like it's yeah. there's so much science to back that up. Well, I often use the analogy or sorry, I should say, I often use the analogy of, a power bank, right? So everyone has mobile phones these days, smartphones. Like sometimes if you're out, maybe you're using, I don't know, Google Maps or something, you know, you're taking videos, your battery just gets drained, right? Yeah. If you have a little power bank, you know, you just plug your phone into it, boom, you have a little bit extra energy. Now it's not phenomenal. Maybe your power bank is fairly shitty. It doesn't give you a full charge on your phone, but it allows you to get an extra 10 minutes with your phone, something like that, right? That's kind of what I think of, creatine like it's like it's not going to just automatically give you another day's worth of energy right but it gives you those extra few minutes 
You know, it gives you those extra extra few reps in the gym potentially, right? Or that extra ability to push for just a second longer, right? So it's kind of just an extra power bank, right? Now it's not a game changer, I would say, for most people. It's kind of one of those things that it's just a subtle aid, you know? Like you might notice, oh, I actually am able to get just an extra rep here or there, you know? And like, yeah, it's going to be hard to tell because training programs, for example, you would presume they're going to be progressing over time, but you might just notice like, actually, it is a little bit easier for me to just get eight reps. Whereas I used to always struggle on that seventh rep, you know? Um, so there's, there's that. Now, certain populations, especially vegans, plant-based dieters, they might actually notice a much more significant benefit due to having lower creatine intakes in their diet in general, right? There are also well, potentially creatine non-responders, like people that just don't really notice a huge benefit. Um, and there's obviously gradations in between that. You might have people that are like, I literally got zero benefit from this or noticed zero benefit from this all the way up to the people that are like, this is a, an absolute game changer, right? Yeah. You're going to fall somewhere on that spectrum. And it is hard to really, really analyze where you fall on that spectrum. Obviously, if it's night and day difference, it's much easier to, to see the, the benefit, right? But if you're on this like, oh, actually, I'm getting a, an extra rep, one rep maybe per workout. And I was like, that, that's kind of hard to tell. You know, was it the creatine? Was it because I slept an extra 10 minutes? Like, well, what was going on, right? Um, so even in those cases, even if you feel like you're a creatine non-responder, I still think there's benefit to taking it, you know? There's still benefit. Like if your phone is still 100% charged, there's still benefit to having that power bank in your pocket just in case, you know? Um, but that's my perspective on it. Anyway, three to five grams, Generally, I just say five grams. Most of the times the scoop in the creatine packet is five grams and we just pop it in. Like there's, again, like you said, you'll get caught up on like timing schedules and loading phases and all this stuff. I'm like, just take it consistently, you know? Like, yeah, you can make it more difficult and be like, well, actually, if you take it after your workout, that's the most optimal time for it um, and whatever. But it just, it's meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Just take it. Just take it consistently. Every day, you're good to go, right? Um, unless you have anything else to add on to that, what other? Yeah, no, just before, just to linger on creating just for for another moment. Uh, for any weight making athletes, they may also want to consider the cessation of creating about maybe four weeks out from competition because creating pulls water into the muscle cell with it. Um, so that's just another consideration for any powerlifters or, um, you know, MMA athletes or jiu-jitsu athletes or anything like that that's listening to this. Um, and also like for people that, that are thinking about taking it and stuff like that to make it a little bit easier, if you put it into a hot drink, it'll dissolve a lot easier. Because sometimes like if you put it, some people put it into like porridge and it's a bit like gritty depending on the type that you get. Uh, but if you put it into like a cup of tea or coffee and just drink it, it'll dissolve very, very, very easily. So that's just another little tip for that as well. But uh, yeah, I'm ready to move on um, unless you have anything else you want to. Because you, you mentioned about the weight uh, athletes, this is another thing that people do often say about it. Like, oh, it's going to make me gain weight. And they're like, oh, there's water retention because of creatine. And for some people, there is like extracellular water retention. For a subsection of the population, that seems to be the case. But for the vast majority of people, that extra water is inside the muscle, which actually aids in performance then because yeah. effectively you're better hydrated, right? So I wouldn't be too worried about that. Obviously, if you are a weight class sport or in a weight class sport, I should say, 
you know, that's something that maybe you need to pay a little bit more attention to. Um, but even in that case, like I don't see creatine being the make or break of your, uh, your ability to make weight. You know, it's not like it's gaining or it's not like it's making you gain fucking 10 kilos of water weight. You know, it's like, you know, maybe at most here, we're talking about a kilo, like at the absolute yeah. outer limits here, you know? Um, so just, just keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the next one that we can talk about is protein powder. So again, you could, you could argue that this is food and not a supplement, but I think, you know, it's, it's, you buy protein powder in a supplement shop. So, so let's, let's talk about it here. So, as I say, protein powder, it is basically whey protein powder specifically is a byproduct in the production of cheese. Um, so it's that stuff, that watery stuff that you might see at the top of when you open a, a thing of yogurt, that is whey. And essentially they just dry that out and flavor it. And that is your, your whey protein. Now, this is to me, like again, A-list supplement, super, super useful thing to have for anyone really. I think like if you're if you're interested in health and fitness, Protein powder has a lot of utility. Um, and again, if you're lactose intolerant or vegan, it doesn't have to be whey protein. It can be you know, soy protein or it can be a vegan protein or whatever. But I think just the versatility of having a protein powder for athletic performance is can't be understated. You know, I think when we look at, you know, what is important for, for any athlete, recovery from your training is is pretty key. And protein is going to be the 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 thing that's going to facilitate that. Like whenever I think of the the three macros, the the phrase that I use is protein to grow, carbs to go, and fat for your mojo. That's a nice little way of, of thinking about it. But again, if you are struggling to get protein into the diet, or maybe you're traveling an awful lot and you need something that's convenient. Again, protein powder is a good way of getting it in. Whey protein specifically is a very high quality source of protein. So it has the full spectrum of amino acids that you need uh, for your recovery and adaptation um, from your training. And, you know, overall, it's as I say, it's so versatile. You can fire it into smoothies. You can put it into porridge. You can put it into yogurt. You can make like, you know, you were, ma- you had, you were eating something with protein powder in it before we got onto the call, Patty. You know, there's, there's, there's loads of versatile uses for it. Um, and I think nowadays, I think Gary had a, a reel about this maybe last week. It's like there's so many flavors and there's so many different varieties of products that have protein powder in it that it's just, you know, it's it's never been easier basically to hit your targets with protein. And as an athlete, you know, especially especially if you're an athlete that's within that sort of strength, power, maybe need muscle, additional muscle, et cetera, you know, you, you do want to be prioritizing your protein intake and protein powder facilitates this very nicely so yeah 100 and again going back to that <clears throat> initial kind of framework we were thinking about in terms of like what's the goal like protein helps with a few things there first of all it helps with your recovery in between sessions like that's kind of what we're thinking about right and um, like it's helping you effectively recover from that training session it's not completely accurate to think of it like this but it does help to kind of explain it like you're breaking down muscle and i'm putting that in inverted commas when you train right that's not 100 accurate but we'll use it right so you have to build back those muscles and you need amino acids to do that and you get those amino acids from protein right so that's the thing now there is all there are also other components to that not just in terms of the raw substrates right if you're taking protein power powder i should say especially if it has a high leucine content, you know, it's actually serving as a switch, like a signaling molecule as well. Like it's actually helping you 
with the adaptations, not just by virtue of providing those raw substrates. You know, it's actually a switch. Like it's actually flicking the switch for you. You're like, okay, now it's time to build muscle, right? That leucine is like a trigger, right? Um, so it hits two of the vectors that we really care about when we're talking about this. It's like, it's helping you improve those adaptations and it's also helping recovery, right? So phenomenal tool, right? But like you said, it is basically just a, a dietary component, right? It's like saying like, oh, uh, Greek yogurt is a supplement, <laughs> you know? It's like, it's it's just, this is just a, a, a protein product, right? And um, there are so many different options out there Lots of them are relatively cheap, although like with supply chain issues and whatever else that they claim uh, these days, um, it is a bit more expensive. Um, but even still, relatively good, high return on investment addition to your diet. Now, you can make the claim or just eat more meat or other protein containing foods. And yeah, 100%. But the fact that protein powder is just very versatile, like you can make foods or make meals that wouldn't have a protein source otherwise, you can now make them have a protein source. You know, like people often, it's it's actually really funny because you see a lot in like, say in Ireland, uh, you'll see people going like, oh, you shouldn't take that protein powder. It's like a, it's like a steroid, you know, it's bad for you, right? And it's literally like whey protein. And people do stuff like that, put whey protein powder in their oats, right? And that's literally a traditional Irish meal. Like you, you can go back thousands of years and people were eating that in Ireland, right? But now apparently because it's sold by, I don't know, Optimum Nutrition or some other MyProtein or whatever, it's like, oh, now it's a steroid, <laughs> you know? It's like this, it, it's just a food component. It's just a part of the diet, right? Um, but yeah, anyway, protein powder, look, we're advocates of it. Doesn't have to be whey protein. There are a multitude of options out there. Whey protein is just relatively cheap and it's quite effective. Right. And um, other than protein powder, unless you have anything else to say on that, what next? So another A-list supplement is caffeine. And I suppose we could actually categorize caffeine as a drug more so than a supplement, but it's again, interchangeable in many ways. Um, again, I don't think people ever think everyone knows about caffeine in, in, in some capacity. The most commonly used drug around the world, my my guy is currently sipping on some coffee and I'm actually sipping on some Monster. So that actually exemplifies uh, what we're talking about here. But again, central nervous system stimulant, it's one of those things that, you know, time and time again, there's just reams and reams of research to show that it's super effective in every, in every realm of, of human performance. Um. And this is just because, as I say, it has that effect on the central nervous system. It's a stimulant. Um, you know, when you when you drink a cup of coffee or or a monster, or if you have some pre-workout or whatever it is, you will feel within 45, 60 minutes that you're more you're you're more upbeat, right? You know, you're you're more cognitively zoned in. You know, you're you're it, it can help you study a little bit. Um, you know, it's it's essentially it's creating more of a focal point shall we say it's opening your your your, your peripheral vision you know you, you just feel a little bit more tuned in a bit more awake a bit more stimulated um but again from an athletic performance perspective it can be helpful here as well even in terms of like your your muscles ability can to contract you may be able to produce a little bit more force because you have more of that stimulation um and again you know as i say it's it's just one of those things whereby when you look at the research in all of the different types of sports whether that's you know from ultra marathon running all the way up to 
you know, strongman and powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting, it seems to have a positive impact on all of those different, uh, all of those different realms of human performance. Um, now, again, it's, it's of course not without its drawbacks because I suppose something that has such a, a relatively strong effect on the body and the nervous system you know, you, you do have to uh, be sort of intelligent with your use of it. it. It tends to stay in the body for a relatively long time. You know, the half-life is somewhere between six to nine hours, depending on how your how your, your individual metabolism is and, and depending on how it, how it breaks it down. So because it's a stimulant, it's obviously going to affect your sleep as well. And as Patty said at the very start of this podcast, you know, you need to be eating well, training well, managing your stress and sleeping well. Those are kind of the keystone habits that we want to be uh, focusing our attention on, not supplements. Um, and I always say to people like, you know, I would prefer that you get seven, eight, nine hours of really high quality deep sleep than for you to get the benefits of, of caffeine. You know, if, if it's a if it's an either or situation, I would always choose sleep. Um, so that's why, as we say, try to have a bit of a cutoff point for it. 12 p.m. maybe a little bit later is 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 good just because it accounts for that slightly that, that relatively long half-life of, of caffeine where it stays in your system for a relatively long time so that it doesn't have an interruptive effect um on your sleep. So as I say, it's it's better to have it earlier in the day if you have early morning sessions. You know, I remember like years ago, whenever I was getting into all this health and fitness stuff, like stupid to think back. Well, I used to take C4 pre-workout, which is like, you know, 200, maybe 400 milligrams of it at like 9 p.m. on a Friday night and then go and jack myself up with a load of heavy deadlifts. And then I'd be wondering, like, why can I not get to sleep? It's like, because you took a bunch of caffeine, you idiot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it, it is something that, that you have to do consider is like, right, it is very effective. And, you know, it's essentially effective for any sport that you're doing. And it's effective for any sort of cognitive task that you're doing. But you do have to be intelligent with your use of it, um, and also we there's a tolerance that's built up on it very very fast as well. So you know that's you'll see a lot of people that are literally walking around all of the time off their face on caffeine, basically you know stimulated all of the time because they jack themselves up with a bunch of coffees throughout the day, and then that interrupts their sleep. They don't get good quality sleep, and then they wake up groggy, and then they need coffee to get themselves going. So it's this sort of vicious caffeine cycle that you don't want to be getting into, but as I say, there is a reality with intelligent use where you can have good quality sleep and still get the benefits of it. Um, and I think that that's where you just sort of like cycle your dose. So in the research, it would say that about three to six milligrams per kg of body weight is a performance enhancing dose. I would actually say that try and go to the lower end of that or at least test the lower doses because as I say, some people report that they get more stimulated from it, depending on your sort of genetic propensities. You might have a particular metabolism that doesn't break down the caffeine as well, and then it stays in your system. So these are some things that you need to test out and play around with. Um, but as I say, it's, it's, it's a really nice thing to have in your back pocket. Um, you don't need to sort of be worried about, you know, getting the fanciest pre-workout in the world. Like it literally, caffeine tablets, can a monster or you know, maybe maybe a little bit more depending on the dose that you need or a strong coffee can often be a, a, a useful starting point uh, when when you're wanting to use caffeine. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's one of those things. Very, very effective. Um, it's it's great. Like, I, I, I love caffeine, but it does have obviously its, its drawbacks in terms of specifically the effect that it can have on, on your sleep. But also some people will report that it makes them feel a little bit anxious as well. So, you know, 
yeah, you have to be careful with it, shall we say, and, and intelligent with your use. Yeah, it is a double-edged sword. And again, going back just to that initial kind of framework, it could definitely improve acute performance, right? So if you're using it strategically and going, right, I really need to push hard with this training session or, you know, competition, potentially game, match, whatever, um, you could be very strategic with your use of caffeine and get a very, very good return on investment from that. However, you can also be not strategic, which I would argue that the vast majority of people are not strategic with their use and they'll have two, three coffees a day, right? And then they're like, oh, I have a training session at 6 p.m. So I'm going to take a pre-workout before that or neck a can of Monster or whatever. And they're excessively hyped up for that session. So it's actually more fatiguing, which, you know, that's okay if we can then recover from it. But you've potentially impacted your ability to recover because you're always in this kind of sympathetic fight or flight uh, state. You're always jacked up. You're always like, high anxiety, high stress, high wired. So you're never getting into, you know, those deeper phases, we'll say of recovery, where you're in that kind of parasympathetic nervous system activation, like people walking around with their resting heart rate, like you look at their whatever Apple watch or whatever it is. And it's like, you are sitting here and your heart rate is at 90. Like that's, that's not good. Right. And they're like, yeah, well, I've had like 12 espressos today. And you're like, okay, yeah, that it makes sense now. Right. Um, and then also, like you mentioned, it is potentially also impacting our ability to recover because your sleep gets impacted. And I think this is one of the, the major drawbacks of caffeine use. Um, it just impacts most people's sleep. And the vast majority of people don't even realize how much it impacts their sleep because they go, oh, well, I can get to sleep, um, but my sleep is generally pretty shit, you know? So it's like, oh, I wake up after only six hours of sleep and I'm a bit tired and you know, like I, I have to reach for another coffee as a result. And then they have two, three, four coffees that day and their sleep is shit the next night as well. Right. And you're like, okay, you're in this negative like spiral here where caffeine is clearly causing your sleep quality to be reduced. Right. Even if you have coffee in the morning, right. In a sufficient do dose, it's probably going to have some impact on your sleep that day. Right. It, like, even if we say a half-life of caffeine is eight hours, right? That just means that half the, the dose of caffeine that you've taken is in your system now after eight hours. So if you take a 200 milligram dose, right? Eight hours later, let's say you take that at whatever, let's just say 12. Like Dean, you actually just had one now, it's about 11 o'clock. Like that means I say 200 milligrams. That means in eight hours, let's just assume you're an eight hour metabolizer, eight hour half-life metabolizer. So in eight hours, you're at a hundred milligrams right? So eight hours from now is like seven o'clock, right? So at seven o'clock, you still have a hundred milligrams in your system. That's a, that's a coffee. You know, a lot of coffees are 90 to 120 milligrams of caffeine, right? And most people would be like, yeah, she's probably not smart to have a, you know, a cup of coffee at 7 PM if I want to get good sleep, right? But you effectively have the same dose in your system at that time, right? So it is a little bit, rough if you want to include caffeine you just have to have this trade-off that your sleep is going to be impacted it might be you know a negligible amount but it is some amount and obviously as the doses of caffeine get higher that effect is more significant you know and again unfortunately people reach for more caffeine when their sleep is impacted so again we get in this spiral so personally 
I very often I'm, I say to people, I'm like, look, 400 milligrams, that's the absolute max dose we're going to, even though the research might say like, oh, up to you know, 600 milligrams, like I'm hundred kilos. So six, six milligrams per kilogram, or like that's 600 milligrams. I'm like there's just the half-life of this, even though I take this in the morning, it's just going to be too high for me when I want to get good quality sleep. Right. So we want to keep that dose lower and earlier in the day. And we ideally want to also have off days, right? Not every day of your life needs to be this supercharged, highly caffeinated, you know, experience, right? So if we can get some off days in there and be really strategic with our use, we reduce that, you know, tolerance, which oftentimes I think when people talk about their tolerance, I'm like, what's actually really happened is your negative, the negative effects of caffeine have caught up with the positive effects. So your lack of sleep or inability to, you know, get good quality restorative sleep is now at the point where it's actually more than the improvements in cognition or performance or whatever that you should be getting from caffeine. You know, it's not that the caffeine is less effective in and of itself, you know? Um, so that's caffeine. You know, we've talked about it a few times on the podcast, but it is important to reiterate. It can acutely improve performance, but it can also negatively uh, negative, I can't even speak, negatively impact recovery. And then as a result of that negatively impact on your ability to adapt to the training stimulus, right? Anyway, after caffeine, what's next? Yeah. So I think we're kind of getting into, you know, supplements that are somewhat effective, but maybe more effective for certain sports versus others. Um, so the next one that I want to talk about is beta alanine. So people might have familiarity with beta alanine because they often put it in pre-workouts. It's essentially that ingredient that gives you that tingly sensation or paresthesia as it's called, right? Some people really like it. I really do not enjoy the skin tingles at all. I get it all over my face and I'm yeah, just I like, get my oh. eyebrows. I'm like, what, what the fuck is in my eyebrows? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, I, I don't, I don't find it pleasant at all. Whereas, uh, Kevin, who I train with, he loves beta alanine, the, the tingles. He actually, like, whenever he's putting it into his, like, pre-work, his pump pre-workout or whatever, he has beta alanine on the side because he likes the tingles and sort of the, you know, there's a sort of a, uh, people will report, it's like, right, I feel like this pre-workout is working to some degree. And it's like, that's fine if if, if you do um, use it for that. But the actual physiological use of it, rather than the psychological use of it, is essentially what it's doing is it's increasing muscle stores of carnosine, right? And if we can increase the amount of carnosine in the muscle cell, it allows more of a buffering capacity whenever we're doing exercise that essentially creates that burning sensation, right? So kind of, you know, efforts beyond 90 seconds, let's say, right? And what's happening here. It's, it's a bit of a misnomer. People will say it's like, oh, it's lactic acid. Well, it's actually the increase of hydrogen ions um, through, the, 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 uh, through the muscle contraction in those efforts that's occurring. And essentially, our body has these mechanisms that create this buffering. So it's essentially when you're, the pH levels uh, are become acidic, we have these molecules and these uh, mechanisms inside the body that create a bit of a buffering so that the environment is not acidic. And essentially, carnosine is an intracellular a molecule that will will um, affect that. Now, the reason that we take beta alanine is because if you take carnosine, it doesn't actually have the ability to get into the muscle cell if you just ingest carnosine. So it, it needs to be beta alanine um, for that to occur. 
And similarly to creatine, it's not something like caffeine where it's like, right, you take beta alanine and it works. Yes, the skin tingles might work acutely, but from a perspective of building up the carnosine in the muscles so that you create that buffering capacity, um, it actually has to be something that you take for for a, for you know a number of weeks, basically. Um, Which just on that, and, it's actually really quite annoying because you ideally want to then take it every day. And most people, let's say you're training four days per week, they're really only taking it on the days that they train. So you, first of all, never get a reduction in those like paresthesiatic effects. Um, like you're always getting like maximal skin tingles. Uh, and then you're also not really getting the full benefit of that buildup of carnosine because it's never really getting up to like those topped off levels, you know? So I would only ever say, oh, take beta alanine if you are willing to take it every single day. Right. And also, I just also don't think it's that effective. Yeah. And, and like, if you really, really don't like this, the skin tingles and you have a bit of financial capacity to spend a little bit more, you can get some of the slow release tablets called Carnosyn. Um, so C-A-R-N-O-S-Y-N. So they're just basically a, a sort of a patented slow release tablet. But again, you know, based on the effectiveness, is it worth it? I'm not sure. You know, you can decide that based on, on on what's in your bank account. But I think, as I say, it's one of those things where maybe if you're like a middle distance runner or maybe if you're doing very high reps in the gym, like, you know, 25, 30 reps and, you know, slow tempo and stuff like that, potentially, potentially it has some benefit whenever you're sort of getting into that efforts beyond 90 seconds uh, where you're where, you, where you're creating a lot of this, uh, you know, buildup of hydrogen ions and, and acidity, um, acidosis in the muscle. Um, so we can have some utility there. Yeah, just how much of a benefit? That, there, there are certain sports where you're like, okay, this makes a lot more sense. Like rowers, I used to train a good few rowers. Like for them, I'm like, one of the major limiting factors for them is the buildup of acidosis. Like you often see them doing like a, I don't know, a 2K time trial or something, and they're fucking puking their ring up <laughs> afterwards because it's just so much acidosis, right? And if even if you can get like just a little bit of an edge with some little additional buffering here, like that's potentially, you know, what you need to get on the team, stay on the team, be competitive, etc. You know, so for some sports, you know, you can make a strong argument that this is a really good supplement. But for most sports, it'd be a hard sell for me, you know, and especially people in the gym. I'm like, realistically, you doing your eight reps. Like you might get a very mild beginning sensation tingly of uh, that acidosis feeling, but like, I, I, I just don't think you're getting into the bounds where you would need this. And what's also interesting is this is not the only way we could increase our ability to handle or, you know, increase our buffering capacity, like increasing your aerobic fitness for one, like that aerobic system is what restocks the, the anaerobic system and allows you to do all this stuff. One don't necessarily need to get into it now. And then also training those specific adaptations, the mitochondrial adaptations, the muscle specific adaptations with like specific anaerobic conditioning or conditioning drills will also improve your ability to buffer those hydrogens, you know? So we, if we're going to be taking beta alanine, Ideally, we would be doing all those other things first. And that goes back to like having your training actually be effective, not just throwing in a supplement and going, yeah, my sport, you know, you know, there's a lot of uh, 
hydrogen accumulation, cool, let's do it. You know, it's like, yeah, you might get some small benefit, you know, if your sport is one of the sports that does benefit, but are you optimizing your training to get the most from this? Or is it just like a, a kind of a band-aid where you're just throwing it on and doing, oh yeah, like, you know, hopefully this will work. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's as I say, it, de- uh, it depends on kind of your sport, you know, and it, it, you could deem it to be somewhat effective. And maybe like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, right, you're the type of person, say, you know, obviously we get a lot of, you know, intermediate to advanced gym goers and they're just like, I want to squeeze out that last, you know, that last little bit. If there's, if there's a potential for me to gain 250 grams of additional muscle from using beta alanine and I have the money to spend on it and I don't mind getting the tingly sensation in my eyeballs, it's like, you know, be my guest. But I think for, for, for most people, it's, it's not going to be that overly effective you know but it's it's definitely a lot more effective than than other supplements um in terms of dosage because i don't think we actually mentioned that again a loading phase is is probably necessary to some degree and uh, well it's not necessary but it's obviously going to saturate those muscle carnosine stores a little bit faster um you know you, you can do a loading phase for maybe four five six weeks about 80 milligrams per kg of body weight. And then you can take that down to about 40 milligrams. So to like, I am 77 kilos at the moment. So that's about six grams for me as a bit of a loading dose. Um, and then, you know, about three grams uh, as, as a bit of a maintenance dose if I, if I wanted to do that. Um, but again, you know, it's, it's, it's commonly in pre-workout. So look at the back of your pre-workout to see how much is there. It's usually underdosed. It's usually not three to six grams that, that, that's there. Um, so if you want to use this, like if you want to use beta-alanine to gain some of the benefits that, that we described there, if you're a rower or if you're a middle distance runner or something like that, where, where you are, you, you might have some benefit with regards to this. The chances are that your sort of like pre-workout supplement that you're using is, is probably not going to cut it. So you'll probably need to go and buy beta-alanine separately and then make sure that it's actually um, dosed properly. Yeah, 100%. And unfortunately, if you do run a loading phase, probably going to be scratching your eyeballs out, scratching your asshole, everything, unfortunately. But, you know, they're the trade-offs. And the next one then I just have on the list here is baking soda. And it kind of is a a similar one, which people don't often think about. Um, But it does also potentially aid in that buffering capacity. Um, A lot of people, especially in the doses, is dosages that you would need to take to get a significant benefit from this. Like it's usually like 0.3 grams per kilo. A lot of people would notice like some GI upset. So their stomach would just feel crap on it. Um, it, it can be a nice addition, even in smaller doses. Like if you like a more like carbonated type of drink. So if you're making a pre-workout drink yourself, you know, you're putting in a few different ingredients you can put some baking soda in that and it gets a little bit fizzy and bubbly. And it's like, oh, this is enjoyable, you know? Um, but Along with that, it does actually include a lot of sodium, if especially if you're taking it in efficacious dosages, um, which probably isn't great um, for a lot of people, not even just from like a blood pressure perspective, which, you know, a lot of athletes you could argue are somewhat protected against that because of their high levels of cardio and whatever else. Um, but high sodium intakes are associated with stomach cancers. So yeah. like, again, it might be worth it for your sport. If you're like, I don't care if I get stomach cancer in 50 years time and I die from that, I'm going to be an Olympian in between, you know, again, it, it might be worth the trade-off. Um, 
there are some slight differences in terms of where the buffering is actually occurring when we're talking about beta alanine versus uh, baking soda. I don't necessarily need to get them into it in this podcast because ultimately I don't think it's all that effective, either of these, you know? There's potentially some cases for some sports where that's that's going to be the make or break. You know, we just we've done everything we can to improve your ability to buffer acidosis. And now we've started layering on different supplements that potentially have a role in buffering acidosis, you know? Um, but yeah, I just don't think either of these are all that effective. I don't generally recommend them um, unless it's specific cases. Yeah, and just on the note of there, you mentioned the the gastric upset that people commonly experience. With a lot of these supplements, especially ones like baking soda or caffeine that have an acute effect, don't try these for the first time when you're competing. I always say that to people. You know, people will try sodium bicarbonate or ba- baking soda the day that they have to run a half marathon, and then they're absolutely keeled over. Or they should they. Or they shit themselves, exactly. And it's like, why did you test this on the day of your competition? It's like, if you're if you're going to try some of these, do so in training. You know, it's it's competition is not the day to be trying new foods or new supplements or, you know, new protocols. And also, it's just like, on top of that, a lower dose. Like, don't just go, oh, it's competition day. It says, you know, a gram of caffeine can be taken. That's I'm going to do it. And you're literally sitting there before your competition, like... <laughs> like <laughs> Right. Yeah. Enough about um, what's next. <laughs> so yeah, next one on the list is citrulline malate. Um, again, pretty. It's a common enough one in terms of uh, pre workouts and pump products and stuff like that. Um, essentially, what it is doing is creating vasodilation. Um, so it's dilating the blood vessels, increasing blood flow to your muscles, delivery of oxygen and and, and nutrients, and part of the reason it's uh, is that it's in pump products is because it, it gives you a pump, right? It, it, it improves the, the the blood flow to the muscles and you, and you get a better pump. Um, again, it's probably a B-list supplement in, in, in my mind. I recently started playing around with, with pump products just because I kind of like, oh, it's it's nice to get, get into the gym, the, the gym and have a, have a bit of a pump. Um, the research is not really like, it, it's saying there might be some benefit in certain circumstances, but again, is it going to be the make or break? Certainly not. And even if you compare it to something like creatine, it's it's just it doesn't come up to snuff in terms of the performance benefits uh, versus something something like creatine. Um, but again, it's it's one of those things that like, as I say, maybe it improves your performance by half a percent to some degree, and and maybe that's worthwhile for you. Or maybe it's a case of like it it improves your enjoyment that you get from doing some training sessions and stuff like that. That like, Honestly, that's why I've started to use a little bit of a, a pump product recently. It's just like, oh, this increases my enjoyment. I get, I get a nice tasty little pump when I'm in the gym. I feel good. Um, but again, it's it's one of those things that's like, right, B-list supplement, consider it if you have a little bit of expendable income. Um, but it's definitely not on the same, it's not on the same platform as protein powder or creatine or, or caffeine in my book for sure. Yeah, and I actually like I actually quite like citrulline malate. I'm like, okay, it's relatively cheap. It's you know a potential aid to workouts in the gym and then also in a specific sporting context. But again, it's not one of those ones that I'd be like, oh look, you know, you only have a small budget. 
you know, it's the difference between should we take some creatine or should we take some citrulline malate? I'm going to choose creatine. You know, there's there's ones that are higher up in the hierarchy rather than citrulline malate. Having said that, I do like it. I think it's a nice addition. So I'm not going to say, no, nah, fuck this. We're not going to take it. Um, there are potential benefits to both the citrulline and the malate or the malic acid component to this. Um, so it's kind of hard to disentangle everything. But if you are taking citrulline malate, Usually it's recommended in the kind of like six to 10 gram range. And again, you might often see it in pre-workouts and it's like in a gram or maybe two grams or something. So like you do have to take an efficacious dose if you are going to try to use it. Um, But it's fucking dirt cheap. So like, it's not like there's a huge financial trade-off by having like fucking 10 grams or something per day. Um, Or before you were, you could take it multiple times a day if you really wanted to. Um, There are some edge cases where you might go, okay, look, you know, this kind of more uh, vasodilation, you know, there's potential benefit there for not just acutely improving performance, but also potentially helping with the recovery side of things because you're getting more oxygen delivery to the muscle, more nutrient delivery. So there are potential, again, edge benefits that you might not necessarily see recorded in certain research studies because you're not testing for that or they're not like trying to see what those benefits are and so like i like it but again it's not the the make or break supplement yeah yeah it's 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 a nice to have not need to have i I would probably that's that's the way i would would categorize it overall um and again i think uh, just what you were saying there but the dosages i think this exemplifies again look on the back of your supplements guys like if you're literally buying something you know if you're buying a pump pre-workout and you're like right what's the actual thing that's going to have an effect here citrulline is, is pretty important and it's like this is 35 euro and it's like the, it has two grams of citrulline and i need six to ten so again this just because it popped into my head read the back of your supplements because again some of them are just not dosed properly it's just like pump pre-workout and it's like let's slap 40 euro on this and it's like right it's not actually as good as even just buying a bag of citrulline and yeah, you know, it's, it's way cheaper. They do it because, you know, I want to have all these different supplements on the label. So you read that and you go, fuck, it has like 20 different ingredients. Oh, I've read about that one. That one's really, oh, that one's really good as well. But you actually look at the doses and you go, this is shit. And I often recommend not just listening to my advice or triage's advice on this, like, because, you know, maybe you might say we're bought out by the supplement industry or we have our biases like i always recommend people use examine.com i'm like they they do a phenomenal job breaking down the benefits of certain supplements you know so you can always fact check any influencers or educators or whatever that you are listening to when they talk about supplements so examine.com phenomenal resource anyway let's move on to the next few because they're not really as efficacious and we don't necessarily need to spend as much time on them but one that is related to a degree uh, to creatine. Well, actually, maybe we'll go to the beetroot nitrates one because it's kind of related to the citrulline malate side of things. What's your thoughts on beetroot or nitrates uh, for improving performance or sports performance? Yeah, so it's beetroot and like beetroot shots and stuff like that um, have been come a little bit more into vogue in, in recent years. Um, it's, it's quite interesting because, um, you know, the it's kind of like 
you have this component of food that seems to be having this performance enhancing effect. Um, and it is, it's not just in beetroot, you'd also get it in like rocket leaves and, and dill and some other like cruciferous vegetables and stuff like that. But essentially what's occurring here is you are ingesting nitrates in the form of beetroot in this case, but also some of those other uh, vegetables. The bacteria in your mouth are um, converting that into nitrites. And then through other processes as it's kind of being digested, digested, should I say, is being converted into nitric oxide. And this has an effect similar to, in the similar pathway um, to the, the citrulline that we talked about. It creates uh, vasodilation. Um, and again, that can have some performance enhancing benefits through delivery of oxygen um, to the to the muscles and, and nutrients to the muscles as well. Um, we should just say like vasodilation, it just simply means like that your blood vessels basically are getting wider, like they're they're yeah. opening up, so to speak. So it's like I always use like blood vessels as like these super highways. It's like adding an extra lane to this super highway. You know, you're like, oftentimes it's closed off because, you know, we need to be more constricted. You don't want to just always have all the lanes open, you know, you know, certain things have to happen um, yeah. and you don't want the blood to just be going absolutely everywhere. And um, so something like this, that is a vasodilator, it just opens up the blood vessels a bit more. There are other things that are vasoconstrictors that we've actually talked about already on this in terms of caffeine actually does have a vasoconstricting effect. So you don't want to be taking this pump product that's supposed to be like, oh, it's going to really give me a great pump. And then you've, you're on like fucking a gram of caffeine. It's like they're they're kind of working against each other, you know? And so again, you just have to be specific with your supplementation. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like I think uh, beetroot overall, like I think, you know, you should be eating beetroot you know, or these vegetables. I think they're good for you, not just because you're getting nitrates. I think just by eating some of these foods, you're typically not going to get the dose of nitrates uh, that's necessary for some performance enhancing effect. And that's why they kind of recommend that you drink uh, beetroot juice or those shots that you get, the concentrated shots. So like 500 ml of juice or, or 70 ml of the, the shots. Um, but again, there, there, there seems to be some interesting research in terms of the, the efficacy of using nitrates from from beetroot um it's, it seems to be th there's other effects that are occurring as well that are that are separate to you know not just this sort of like vasodilation that's occurring there seems to be improvements in like mitochondrial function and efficiency so essentially what's happening there is it might reduce the oxygen cost of your exercise by like kind of slowing the conversion of oxygen to water um there might also be a reduction in the atp cost of exercise so atp is just your kind of your your energy molecule that's that's commonly touted um or commonly in there in in the in exercise physiology and essentially through the consumption of, of these nitrates, there might also be a lowering of this ATP cost by lowering the release of calcium ions into the uh, muscles, or the sar sarcoplasmic reticulum, shall I say, so muscle sarcoplasm. Um, and again, these are just some things that seem to create this sort of performance enhancing effect from using uh, beetroot and, and, and nitrates that are kind of like separate to using something that's like citrulline malate. Um, so it's, it's one of those things that, as I say, if you are, you know, if you're engaged in like endurance exercise or middle distance running or something like this, um, there there seems to be some benefit for uh, certain athletes um, with regards to using supplemental nitrates uh, like this 
um, for some of those reasons. Um, again, is it is it going to be is it going to be a world breaker? Probably not, but again, it might sort of give you that extra one or two percent uh, benefit. Um, and as well as that, there does also seem to be a slight benefit. So one of the ways that you can take this is you before your your training or competition, you would take like a five hundred mil of juice or seventy mil shot of beetroot about beetroot juice two or three hours before you're you're about to engage in whatever effort it is um and there does also seem to be a slight benefit to taking that for about a week beforehand so you're essentially just increasing the blood levels of of uh, nitrates um by just sort of each day taking say a shot of of uh, the the beetroot juice or whatever it is um and there does seem to be some additional benefits there but again it's one of those things that i would say try it and see if you notice any benefit um you know like as i say by the end of this podcast you could have you know what is it like 10 12 things for you to add to your supplement list do you need to be doing using all of them probably not but it's one like i would say beetroot juice and, and nitrates could be something that's worth trying and i have recommended it to, to, to clients in the past and it, it, it seems to have some utility for those reasons that i outlined yeah i'm not against them i'm just like it- they're just not my a-list supplements so i'm like Meh. Yeah. you know they're just they're just much lower down on the the hierarchy of ones that i would recommend similarly betaine is another one that would be kind of lower down on my hierarchy what's the story with betaine yeah so betaine is you might also hear it called it's it's also called trimethylglycine um and it's 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 one of those it's a similar molecule in terms of function in the cell as, as creating. So it's an osmolite. Um, so basically it, it changes the cell volume. Um, again, it's one of those things that uh, it might have some benefits in terms of like attenuating metabolic stress that occurs whenever you're, you're exercising. Um, and it might have some health benefits, but then other research suggests that, you know, it might actually have cholesterol raising effects. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a weird one in a, in a sense. Um, again, it's, it, it's potentially worth trying out. I don't think it's, it's, I would say it's probably a C-list supplement. You know, so far we've kind of talked about like A-list supplements, B-list supplements. I would say betaine or trimethylglycine is probably a C-list supplement. Um you know, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna make or break your your performance, but it is kind of in 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 some of these um, uh, some other like uh, pre workouts you might see you might see it sometimes uh, in there in in, in the ingredients list. But again, it's it's yeah, I I wouldn't be mad about it in terms of the research that I've read on it. Um, but you know, it's uh, as I say, if you have the financial capacity to try some of these additional things out. Um, and you want to see if there's if there is a bit of a benefit to to using uh, BTN or trimethylglycine, then you know fire away is what I would say. Yeah, for sports performance, it's kind of a meh. Yeah, you know, kind of a meh for me. And um, there yeah. might be other reasons you might take something like trimethylglycine um, in terms of like a methylation cycle, but that's a whole other story, you know. Um, but yeah, in terms of sports performance, I don't think I've ever recommended someone take BTN. You know, yeah. Like, it's just not very high up on my supplement list, you know, uh, kind of similar to the next one as well, which is tart cherry juice. What's the story there? 
Yeah, so tart cherry juice. Um, this is an interesting one because essentially what this is, it's a, it's a natural anti-inflammatory, right? So essentially with uh, tart cherries, you're getting a high level of um, the anthocyanins and other sort of beneficial molecules like quercetins. And, and essentially these are molecules that have anti-inflammatory, antioxidant effect. Yeah, you know, they're they're phytochemicals, as you might have heard of some of them before. These are essentially just these uh, interesting little compounds that you'll find in, in fruit and vegetables in, in high amounts. Um, and tart cherry juice just tends to have the, the high amount of these anthocyanins, anthocyanins um, and, and quercetins. Um, and what's essentially occurring here is you might use this if you have a lot of DOMS and you don't want to use like a like a ibuprofen or something like that you don't want to use a a drug um to to as an anti-inflammatory you want to use something that's a little bit more quote-unquote natural um but essentially it's it can be useful if you're experiencing a lot of doms and you want to sort of maybe you you have a lot of doms and you have a competition maybe the day or the the, the day is coming uh, the next day or the day after or whatever it is and you need to reduce some of that muscle soreness um so again it can have some utility there the only thing about it is you know do you want to be reducing inflammation all of the time whenever you're 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 training as it comes to your training adaptations you could argue not you know i think the inflammation is actually part of the process of gaining the the, the adaptations that 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 you get from from your training so jacking yourself up with with a load of anti-inflammatories or antioxidants or you know some of these compounds uh, that are similar to tart cherry juice whether that even like maybe even vitamin c and stuff like this it's like maybe you don't want to be doing this you know it's it's a, you're, you're interrupting the sort of the process of gaining the benefits from your training potentially um so it's not something that, that you would that you would use all the time and in, in, in the same way that you would use maybe a creatine or or a protein powder or something like that but it's it's it's, it's a potential to have in the back pocket you can get it in like capsule form. So Cherry Active is the is the brand that typically you might you might see. Or what you can use is a 30 ml of concentrated cherry juice or 250 ml of the you know the bog standard uh, cherry juice. So that's some considerations around that. It's just, you know, it's 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 not one of those things it's like, yes, this is a performance enhancing supplement and everybody should be using it. It's kind of like, oh, we have this in the back pocket under specific circumstances that might be useful for it. Yeah, literally, I think it's a specific intervention for specific reasons in my mind. That's not something that I would be recommending every day or just that kind of antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, you know, uh, pathway. We're not really looking at that aside from just, you know, eating a generally well-balanced diet. We're not really looking at any supplements for that in terms of helping promote adaptations. And there is, I would say relatively strong evidence to support the opposite. Like you're just going to not or not adapt as much uh, to the training stimulus. But if you have multiple days of competition, for example, you're, I don't know, doing like the CrossFit games or something, you know, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to be training or I'm going to be competing for five days, whatever it is, you know, um, or, you know, strongman events or whatever, you know, you're like, there's, there's a lot going on over a number of days, right? In those cases, I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. Maybe we do want to just dampen down inflammation. Maybe we do want to just make it easier for you to push the next day, you know? Um, but in terms of actually adapting to training over time, we're potentially shooting ourselves in the foot by virtue of not actually allowing ourselves to go through that inflammatory process and resolve that inflammatory process and actually adapt to the training stimulus.
you know. Um, and then the final one, um, although there are obviously countless other ones that we can go through, is actually something that I'm like, this is actually potentially really effective, right? But it's also something that I don't really recommend a whole lot. Um, what is the next one? Carbs, carbohydrate supplements. Um, so again, this is basically in the same category as protein powder. You know, it's uh, depending on your sport and depending on your particular circumstances, this could be a fucking game changer, you know. Um, but I think, you know, again, it, it is essentially just food. You know, if it's an energy bar or an energy gel or a Lucozid sport or maltodextrin powder or whatever it is, it's essentially you're, you're just providing additional carbohydrates from a supplement form versus through your diet essentially right um and again this this can be really really uh, like not only like beneficial but essential in some cases depending on your sport specifically for endurance sports where you're going to be producing you're you're going to be exercising and and uh, producing force for you know hours you know long periods of time where you know your blood glucose levels the you know especially after kind of like maybe 60 to 90 minutes of, of effort they're going to actually become a limiting factor for you and you may need to to use these supplemental carbohydrates to bring the your blood glucose levels back up um so yeah i think for for endurance athletes massive massive consideration to potentially think about using carbohydrate supplements for everybody else i would say probably not um there may be utility in say uh, an athlete that's trying to pack on some weight and they're really struggling to to get their calories in um, or potentially, you know, you're, you have a particularly long training session, but even then, you know, I think 90 minutes to two hours is kind of the, the minimum amount of time that I would be training before which I would be like, right, okay, maybe we need to start supplementing with carbohydrates. Now, again, if your pre-workout meal sucks or you're not eating a pre-workout meal, again, maybe there's utility here, but that's, you know, the problem with your, the organization of your diet where you're not having a proper pre-workout meal with carbs to sort of uh give your get your blood glucose levels where they need to be for your food training but again which just on that carbs. might be a case for you know maybe you're trying to be an athlete and you have a nine to five job and a commute or whatever like it it might be something that we just have to do like you're just not able to organize your nutrition effectively but again in general what you're saying is bang on in terms of like if you feel like you need carbohydrates during your session for your 60 minute resistance training session or something i would probably look to the diet first of all yeah for sure uh, you know i think like carbohydrates is one of those things when you when you actually look at ways to easily get carbs in the diet you know there's a few choices out there like if, if you have a nice selection of like pasta and bread and rice and you know a few potatoes and you've got a selection of different fruits and maybe you have the more, you know, on the more processed end, you have a few like cereal bars, square bars, jellies, whatever it is. You know, if you have a list of those ready to go and you can go into the shop and pick them up and you can sort of strategically place them and organize them into your day, should you need a high level, you know, say if you're maybe you have to have over 400 grams of carbs, or something like that in, in your day, like you should be able to get that through your diet mostly. Um but again, I think the, the people who's going to benefit most of this is our marathon runners, our triathletes, um, our cyclists, ultramarathon runners, Ironman, etc. Um, and that's kind of like once you go beyond right two hours of, of training or competition, that's when there might be some utility in starting to use um, Lucozid Sport or Energy Gels or whatever it is. Um, now, what, what a consideration here that I like to make with this is 
if you are supplementing with intra-workout carbohydrates, you know, you're a marathon runner and, you know, you're thinking, right, I need to be sure I'm topping up my stores here. One consideration to make is that we have a capacity for uh, the digestion of carbohydrates during exercise. Like when you consider the digestive processes that occur when you're actually exercising you know your body doesn't really want to be thinking about digestion if you're in the middle of a run right so you know you have to consider the the digestive comfort that occurs here and that's why when it comes to sort of long distance endurance events you do want to practice training with additional carbohydrates so that your that your gut can basically be trained to handle the amount that, that you're supplementing with now from the research it, it seems to be up to about 90 grams of carbohydrates can be consumed per hour you know, you can train yourself up to that where it can be sort of digested, assimilated and, and, and utilized uh, by your body. Uh, so about 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour is kind of the top end where you can train anything after that and you're not really utilizing it or it's just going to start creating digestive stress. Um, and another important consideration here as well is you want to have different types of carbs if you are sort of getting into that higher level of like, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 grams of consumption per hour. And you want that in a, in a, a breakdown of about two to one glucose to fructose. So let's say you're having 90 grams of, of carbohydrates. You want 60 grams, that'd be a bit glucose and then 30 grams could be fructose. And the reason for this is because glucose and fructose use different transporters inside your digestive system. Um, when, it, when it comes to the, the, the process of let's say digesting and, and, and utilizing those carbohydrates. So that's just another consideration as well. This is usually accounted for with most supplement companies that are, you know, that are worth their salts. Essentially, they'll sort of build this in, the, you know, you'd have an energy gel, which, which will be a certain amount glucose, certain amount fructose. So, you know, just look again, look on the back of the labels to make sure that it's it's adhering to that. Um, and again, you know, if you're doing a marathon and you've never had supplemented carbohydrates before, don't just jack yourself into like 90 grams of intra-workout carbs off the gate just because you heard me say that that's kind of where you should be trying to hit this is a top end recommendation that you need to train your digestive system to be able to handle um, and again you'd start with kind of like you know maybe you eat a banana or, or a square bar or drink a lucasade sport and then you sort of build yourself up to that and again some people would argue that you probably don't need to be you know unless you're doing like you know very very competitive marathon running ultra marathon running you probably don't need to be super meticulous about like right i have to build myself up to this sort of 90 grams of carbohydrate consumption per hour of of racing yeah like again it's one of those ones that i'm like this this could be a game changer this could actually be a phenomenal intervention but for most of the people that i train and i think most of the people in general i'm like look to the diet first and foremost and we can get very very far with that you know there are some cases like i do have a lot of clients that are doing like half marathons marathons that kind of you know distance and for them i'm like yes sometimes we might need to have some sort of quicker digesting carb either you know right before the training session or during the training session and you know stuff like carbohydrate powder i mean speak carbohydrate powders for example might be a phenomenal tool to use or those gels goos whatever right but for most people i'm like look you you could probably just eat more carbs and i think most people would enjoy eating more carbs now of course if we already have a huge level of output, you know, you're doing, you you need to be eating like 5,000 calories per day, like adding in an extra hundred grams of rice might just be the make or break where you're like, look, I just cannot, I cannot eat another hundred grams of rice. 
but I could take in, you know, whatever, 50, 70 grams of some sort of like carbohydrate powder while I'm doing the training session, you know, and that can be the case for both uh, endurance athletes that have a huge output, but then also like bigger bodybuilders, for example, that just have a large caloric requirement. Um, and for them, especially in like when they're trying to gain weight, like digestion can be a limiting factor in terms of their actual desire to eat. Um, so for them, again, it might be the case that we do introduce some sort of carbohydrate powder, you know, but even then I'm like, there are also potentially other choices that we could take, we could make like jellies, like you said. Um, so there, there are, there are choices here. Um, that kind of wraps it up unless you want to go through anything to avoid. If you want to do a quick run through that, if not, then we'll just kind of wrap it up here. Yeah, I'll, I'll quickly bounce through them, them couple of points that I have here. Uh, like I made a reel on this on, on three of them here. Um, and, and you actually touched on one earlier anyway, but stuff to avoid is dubious looking supplements and companies, right? So as I say, informed sport is kind of the label that you want to be trained to shoot for, especially if you're a professional athlete, right? So if you're really concerned about, am I can I could I potentially be consuming a banned substance that gets me banned for two or three years, and I and I lose all my financial the you know the financial support that I get from from my sport, then this is a big consideration. So if you and go on a website, happen. not just like yeah. oh you know this is something that maybe could happen, like it happens all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Like so, you know. If you go on a, web, a supplement website and it's like they sell protein powder and they also sell SARMs and pro hormones and a bunch of other mad looking stuff and their pre-workout has all this crazy shit in it that, that just does not look right and you don't see the informed sport label on any of it and, you know, it's getting shipped from Russia or some of these places like, you know, have a bit of common sense here. You have to be really cognizant of the fact that, that a lot of these supplements can be contaminated um and I, again informed sport is the logo that you want to be shooting for there's an informed choice which is a green label um and that is not as rigorously tested as the informed sport right so i think informed sport is a orangey yellow sort of label whereas informed choice is a green one and i i would recommend to to have to give you the most peace of mind if you're a professional athlete choose supplements that's basically batch tested via informed sport so the next one then is bcas again if you're eating enough proteins for your diet or you're supplementing with protein powder you don't need to be supplementing with bcas right you're, you're getting them from your typical sort good sources good quality sources of protein meat dairy eggs fish or if you're vegan soy vegan protein powders like corn products whatever it is bcas in most cases potentially maybe if you're a vegan or whatever that you might need additional amino acids. You know, I, I just don't think that it's a useful supplement. Um, You know, if, if you like the taste of BCAs and it's like, all right, I want to flavor my drink, just go and get clear way isolate if you want something in that round, right? So don't waste your time with BCAs. Ketones, again, you know, there's been a bunch of research done on ketones. There doesn't seem to be any kind of like, the, you know, especially when you consider the cost of them, there doesn't seem to be any performance improvements to be had. Um, like, and part of the reason is just the, the body's just ability to to take up and utilize ketones um, as some sort of like a substrate for uh, performance. It's just, it pales in comparison to, you know, even using say carbohydrate supplements or, or anything like that. So avoid ketones. Um, as Patty said, alternative forms of creatine, they're useless. Just stick to creatine monohydrate. You don't need to be spending your extra money. There's no additional benefit to going for creatine 
HCL or Ethylester or any of that bullshit. Testosterone boosters. You guys had a podcast on testosterone boosting supplements. It was the last one or the one before. I so remember it was like two months ago at this stage. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's like, you know, you can go back and listen to that podcast, but there's there's nothing, there's nothing that's like, right, this supplement, first of all, is legal. <laughs> and second of all, definitely has a load of research in humans that show that it has uh, a sort of a, a an increase in testosterone that would produce uh, benefits from a muscle or performance perspective that would be worth taking or even worth risking, you know, because a lot of these T-boosters, as I say, you're, you're into the realms of things where it's like, right, you're buying a T-booster and it's like, okay, maybe they fire something in there that that actually is going to boost your testosterone, but it is actually illegal. And then again, you're 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 potentially looking to get yourself banned um, from your sport. Um, and then the last one is just uh, expensive variations of certain supplements, like Athletic Greens is a big one. That a lot of podcasters are, you know, they're supporting um, or affiliated with. It's outrageously expensive. Just eat more fruit and veg. Um, or you know even, yeah, literally even if you can't you know because they often say oh take athletic greens when you're on the road traveling whatever i'm like this is literally the most expensive form of this for something that has an almost identical like label ingredient list you could get yeah, you know? yeah exactly so it's it's just don't don't uh, feed into the hype just because your favorite podcaster or influencer or whatever it is or they have a discount code for it or whatever it's it's to me it's not worth the money like you're you're really sort of you're ba- you're you're spending an awful lot of money for something that's not really that good cost benefit ratio is terrible revive active is another one um my clients say i'm taking revive active i'm just like this is like this is a substantial amount of money to be paying for what is essentially a, a multivitamin with a few extra bells and whistles in it like so again i would say avoid that essentially um use your critical thinking skills guys read the labels and stuff assess kind of right is there actually any beneficial use of this supplement that i can't get from my diet and how much of a cost is it is it actually worth me spending you know one two five percent of my monthly income on whatever this is yeah 100 percent. anyway i don't really have anything else to add to this discussion i think we covered everything we wanted to cover and um, so where can people find you dean yes you can find me on instagram at dean.macaloon uh, obviously i'm on the triage instagram account as well and very soon we will be producing a lot more long-form content on a variety of different platforms specifically youtube and stuff like that um so you'll be seeing a lot more of us uh, hopefully in those formats as well so yeah 100 anyway guys i don't have anything else to say uh sorry again for not being incredibly active with our content production again we just had a few weeks where you know it just it just didn't work out um but we are back we will be back on a monday regularly in your ears you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts you can find us on instagram youtube all the usual places all the stuff is linked below we do have coaching spots open and available i know dean you have a good few uh, spots available to take on new clients i have a few spots gary is as of recording now and it's the 11th of may gary has finished his medical exams and so he will have more coaching spots available as well if you've been kind of holding out until he was finished his exams you you want to work with gary for example and you're like oh look he's doing exams not taking on clients well, he is taking on clients now. Brian has clients available or client spaces available, as does Luke. So 
we have space. If you're looking for coaching, get in touch. The links are below. If you're looking to get certified as a nutrition coach, again, links below. Um, Other than that, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and we will see you again next week.